Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Dr. Sanjay Gupta, a neurosurgeon and CNN's chief medical correspondent. Sanjay, who appears on CNN daily and hosts a podcast about the coronavirus pandemic, has been a guide for many throughout this crisis. He also recently released a really great series of interviews with top experts that ran the U.S. coronavirus response under President Donald Trump, from Dr. Anthony Fauci to Dr. Deborah Birx. It's a valuable autopsy based on 20 hours of interviews that describes what happened and what went wrong in our response to the crisis. I called up Sanjay, who is a practicing neurosurgeon, on Thursday morning to talk about the vaccines, how close we are to defeating the virus, conservative arguments against lockdowns, and the theory that COVID leaked from a Chinese lab. We also talked about his tips for keeping up your mental health during a pandemic. Sanjay Gupta is a neurosurgeon, host of the podcast Coronavirus Fact Versus Fiction, author of the new book Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age, and CNN's chief medical correspondent. Sanjay, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. How are you? Uh, what a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I am. Um, I, I answer this question by saying I am doing the same. <laughs> it's it's like, like every day for the last you know fourteen months. It's sort of the same. I'm healthy. I've been vaccinated. I feel that psychological weight uh, being lifted as a result. But but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Uh, I'm doing well. I actually uh, that segues nicely to my my first question, and I, I hate to do this to you, doctor, but uh, it's a question about myself. Uh, I'm getting my <laughs> first dose of the Pfizer vaccine next week, um, as are many New Yorkers now that most are are qualified uh, yeah. and eligible. Uh, should I? What should I expect from that? Are there any side effects that I should look out for? Or? Well, well, if I may ask just one question, did, mm. did you ever have COVID? I did not. Not that I you know did of. Not. And the reason I ask that is because if you had COVID, you would probably have antibodies. Your immune system would already sort of be primed for this. And as a result, the first shot, you might feel uh, more significant side effects. Um, okay. Having not had COVID, you get the first shot. My guess is that you're, you're really not going to notice much. You, you, you um, nice. may have a sore arm. I always, as a doc, I always ask my patients when they say they have a sore arm, can you throw a ball? I mean, would you be able to throw a ball still? And I think for you, the answer would still be yes. Mm -hmm. So the first shot for most people, especially people who've not had COVID, uh, has not, there seems to be a a relatively small amount of side effects. Great. All right. I I won't cancel my my plans then. Um, So we're now more than a year uh, into the pandemic, and it's it's one of the biggest stories of, of, you know, the last few decades. It's certainly the biggest global health story. And you have been a fixture on CNN throughout, uh, providing guidance from the early throes of the crisis uh, through to now when we, you know, at least have a little bit of light at the end of a very long tunnel. Uh, Did you ever expect that this would erupt into the year-long crisis that it did? No, I I, I did not. I I think that um, there's always that that sort of sense in the back of your mind that this could turn into this, this catastrophic pandemic. Uh, I think it's, it's how, you know, certainly docs, but I think most humans are sort of wired, you know, uh, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. But, you know, you keep in mind, you know, I covered H1N1. I covered H5N1. I was in Southeast Asia for that. I was in West Africa for Ebola. I covered SARS. I covered MERS. I covered all these things and oftentimes on the ground in these places. And, you know, sometimes it was, it was very devastating what was sort of unfolding. But the idea that it would turn into a, you know, a true pandemic of, of this magnitude, I, I did not anticipate it. And I thought that if it ever would happen, it would be a flu virus. So when I heard coronavirus, there was concern. But no, I didn't think this. 
And now in the United States, we're in this race between vaccinations, which are being administered at like breakneck speed, uh, and a potential fourth wave of uh, infections as variants spread. Uh, experts seem to disagree on whether we're facing down another wave or if our progress on vaccinations and the herd immunity already in the population has made that unlikely. What do you think? Well, I, I, I will answer with great humility and, and not, not just because, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I am truly, I think, a, a person who has humility. But I think this virus has humbled us in terms of um, how we make predictions about things. You know, I guess it was Yogi Berra once said, I, I really don't like making predictions, especially about the future. And I think that that adage sort of applies here. What I would say, though, because I want to give you an answer, is that I am still optimistic. Um, and the reason I am optimistic is because this this particular variant that, that people are talking about, B117, the one that originated in the UK, is more transmissible. And I think that means tangibly, and I have, I have teenage kids. So we have these conversations all the time. Tangibly, that means you've been really good, but you probably have, you know, let your guard down a little bit. Maybe you let your mask slip down a little bit. Be diligent about this because this is a less forgiving variant. It's going to, it's going to find a host more easily. So the things you could have gotten away with in the past, you can't be more vigilant, especially over the next couple of months, because at that point, you'll give the, the vaccine enough time to sort of overtake the variants and, and win this, this metaphorical race. So I, I am optimistic that that could happen. And just uh, practically speaking, do you think just looking at the vaccinations and the level of herd immunity that we have, is the United States on a good track to reach a, a good degree of immunity by the summer? And if so, what do you think we'll be able to do? Yeah, I, I think that we, we're certainly, you know, as you said, vaccinating at a breakneck speed. And, you know, I've, I've done all the back of the envelope calculations. I talked to the vaccine distributors in all these various states that are that are doing uh, some of the, the biggest distributions. And I think that that's going to continue. Like we will even increase the pace of vaccinations, which is incredible. Uh, you know, we should we should celebrate that. It's never been done before. Um, I think there's another thing that often gets left out of the discussion, which I think is beneficial. And that is that depending on which model you look at, there's probably 80 to 100 million people in this country that have been previously infected. We don't know the number because we've never had a great testing program in this country. But the, but the point is that those people who've been previously infected also have immunity. So you, you've got to count them in some way. Now, a certain percentage, about a third of them, are both people who've been previously infected and have been vaccinated. So you don't want to count them twice. But even if you do the math on that, I think going into summer, we're going to have a significant percentage of the country with immunity. We'll continue to vaccinate. The weather gets warmer. The virus doesn't like that. And I think that confluence of events makes the summer um, you know, a, a much more normal appearing summer. I think there'll be places around the country where um, you're still going to have mask mandates uh, in certain situations when you're out in public with, with a high population density. There may be still limited indoor dining in places where you are seeing virus start to spike. But besides the vaccination numbers, if you see the numbers of new cases go down below 10,000, below 9,000, around that, you'll feel like in this country, we can finally put this thing in containment mode. Like you can put your hands around this. We haven't been able to do that almost since the start. I mean, yeah, we've been effectively overwhelmed since March, basically, which is a yeah. crazy thing to, to consider. Speaking uh, sort of the, to, to use a specific example, do you think that because I know in, in England, they've announced a schedule for reopening 
and as of uh, as of June, it's it's fairly open. Just speaking in the United States, do you think that we'll be able to in New York, let's say, be inside a basement nightclub without a mask by July? I, I think I think it's possible. I, I, I think that there, you know, part of that is just the basic viral dynamics question, and part of that is the psychology. I, I, I do think that you know there's going to be a hangover trauma from this, and I don't want to dis- be dismissive of that because I think it's going to be scary for people, you know, for for a period of time. I mean, ultimately, the hangover effects may be the same way that we take off shoes when we go to the airport. We don't really think about it, but that's a remnant of a terrible tragedy in our country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think, I think the, but I, you know, look, Aiden, if you, if you look at what was going on in Wuhan, where this virus germinated in, you know, um, end of 2019, by the summer of 2020, they were having rave parties, you know, high population density, unmasked rave parties. Point is it can be done. Um, it, it is within our capacity. And by the way, when they did that, there were no vaccines. Mm. So they did that without vaccination. Just so by suffocating here, the virus. Yeah. Basic yeah. public health strategies, the same things that have worked for a hundred years, you know, longer than that. I think that's, um, I think the key, so to answer your question about a big sort of um, party, indoor party in, in New York in July, um, I think it's quite possible. I think if viral transmission were in containment mode, and again, there's specific numbers behind that. I think that the idea of having widespread testing available in people's homes where they can test themselves and they can know whether or not they are contagious, I think it would be really key. Uh, th- there's all these strategies outside the vaccine. But I think, uh, you know, New York may be in a position where they say we are going to have, there's enough people vaccinated, the viral transmission is so low, we can essentially return to normal. If you went to that party, you probably still see, see some people wearing masks, mm-hmm. you know, and if there are people who are vulnerable and haven't been vaccinated, they, they obviously shouldn't go to that party. But other than that, I think, I think there will be this, this, this earnest return to normalcy. And I think you're right about the hangover, particularly in New York, because it was just hit so hard yeah, by the virus. Right. Um, now, speaking of just those mitigation efforts, there's been a big conversation, particularly in conservative media, about lockdowns. Um, the argument is that the performance of states like Florida and Texas, in comparison to New York, proves that lockdowns and other mandated prevention measures don't work. What do you make of that argument? Well, fundamentally speaking, just just to paint the picture, you know, this is a, a little strand of genetic material, this virus. Uh, it can jump from person to person, from host to host. That's how it, it, it sort of gains a foothold in the population. If people are separated and, uh, and not coming in contact with each other, the virus can't do that. That is, that is, no matter what else you think about lockdowns, physical distancing, all that sort of thing, that is a truth. It just separate. If the virus can't get from person A to person B, you're going to start to break the cycles of transmission. I think when you start to compare states like Florida and California, or you know other states, even what you got to realize is that first of all, don't deny that truth. That is a truth. But there could be a lot of other things that are still driving spread. Uh, so look at Florida, for example. You say, well, they're, they're, they didn't have statewide lockdowns. But the mayors of the two largest uh, communities in in Florida did impose lockdowns and mask mandates and things like that. So it's very tough to paint with one brush an entire state. California has a a large population of people 
uh, who were still frontline workers who are out there, you know, uh, potentially being exposed and, and uh, you know, getting infected and getting sick. So, you know, it, it's very hard to look at one particular thing and say, well, this proves lockdowns don't work. The fact is, if you separate people in the middle of a pandemic, that will work. It may not be, it may not be, need to be as draconian as that. Doesn't mean it's the only thing that works, but that would work. Um, but in places where there are lockdowns, were they still a lot of people out there doing frontline work? Were people being diligent about masks? California, I remember people were having indoor house parties. They say, well, we shut all the bars and numbers are still going up. Well, it was because they took those parties to these residential areas. So don't don't deny the science in order to justify why something may or may not work. Look for the, the complete picture. And I suppose it's like it's the difference between a, a common sense scientific thing like masks, where it's very obvious that if you have a mask over your face, it's going to be harder for you um, to spread, uh, you know, viral loads and just the practical application of mandates. Like in Texas, I, uh, I was speaking to someone who said, you know, after they lifted the Texas mask mandate, everyone still wore masks. Right. So, you know, if you're asking why the cases haven't skyrocketed in Texas after they listed the mask mandate, it might have something to do with the fact that these, you know, these measures don't necessarily always correlate with an obvious conclusion. Um, and it just it varies by state. Yeah, I think I think that you, you, you said it very, very well there. I mean, we, we look at the policy and say, well, here's the policy. And that didn't translate to lower cases, et cetera, whatever. But how were people actually behaving? In fact, exactly what you just said, um, the model that a lot of people have followed is this one out of the University of Washington, IHME model. Mm. And the guy who runs it is a guy named Chris Murray. And he said the exact same thing you said. I was surprised that their models didn't show a significant spike in Texas after the lifting of the mandate. And he said their, their, their impression was that people were going to continue to wear masks. So how do the people ultimately behave is the real question. Yeah, I mean, I if if a mass mandate got lifted in New York, I think people would see it as guidance more as sort of a, a, a any sort of mandate that's forcing you to wear masks. I'd still wear masks in the street as you know, as long as case, case numbers were still high. Yeah. Um, now, uh, when you think about how media has covered this pandemic, do you think they've done a good job? You know, I'm thinking of personalities on other networks, particularly Fox News, have received a lot of criticism for their coverage of the health crisis. Um, what's your take on how media has covered this? Um, it's, 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 a, it's a good question. It's a hard question uh, a little bit for me just because I've been so head down in mm. this entire story. Um, my, as a science you know, medical reporter, I spent so much of my time talking to scientists and, and docs about this and trying to convey that. It's a challenging story to cover. I think some have obviously done it better than others. I think one of the challenges has been that every, every, there's not been a single part of the story that hasn't been politicized mm. in some way, which is remarkable. People always talk about masks, but everything has been politicized in this in some way. And I think that's, that's, that sadly, I think, became the story, uh, the politics of it more than the science and the viral transmission and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think, I, I think what, what struck me, and maybe this is the answer to your question, is that if I tell you, for example, something is 0.5% lethal, mm. what kind of how do you interpret that? Do you say, oh my goodness, one in 200 people will die? I mean, and, and I, I don't want to be a part of propagating that. I, I need to do my part to make sure that doesn't happen. I don't know who those one in 200 people are, but you know, I want to make sure they're safe. Or do you look at it and say, well, then I am 99.5% good, right? Why should I care about the rest of, of you know, the, the 0.5%? 
that fundamentally, I think, is what what this came down to: is do you sacrifice, you know, as as some people saw it, uh, the economy in order to save one in two hundred people or not? Mm-hmm. And and I, I think we saw people's, you know, underlying sort of motivations, belief systems, their morality, frankly, and their humanity being expressed in this way. I, I'm a doc, so I guess my my position is sort of clear. I, I err on the side of you know saving lives, per, you know stopping preventable deaths, all that. Like people who die that didn't need to die. I mean, six hundred thousand people. I mean, there, there are countries around the world where a few hundred people have died. People don't like that. They say, well, why are you comparing the United States to these other countries? You know, it, it, there's an ethnocentrism sometimes, a, a hubris mm-hmm. of living in the United States. Some in other countries even call it an arrogance. But what I'm what I'm pointing out is that hey, that's inspiring to us. Look at what they were able to do. We could do that too. Mm. And and um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think some people did a better job than others uh, yeah. with covering the story. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I want to talk about your brilliant series of interviews with six of the doctors who were in charge of the U.S. coronavirus Thank response you. under Trump. Um, and I urge everyone listening to go watch that uh, because it's very good. Um, you mm. said you approached those interviews like an autopsy. What was the most revealing thing that you learned from them? I think I think the most um, the most revealing thing that was sort of a confluence of both science and just the psychology of being in that job was was the idea that they knew a lot more about what was happening and how bad this was before they let on. Um, and some of it, you know, even a year later, and that those interviews was sometimes the first time I heard how bad they knew things were at the time you know uh, we as reporters are sort of trying to keep up and parse out all the information coming from not only scientists but from the white house from cdc all these all these places but why did they why didn't we hear it then if they knew it at the time right that was the real question and part of part of it was that they all i think felt like they were the right person for the job that they were in and if they spoke out in a way that um, was going to be infuriating to the White House, to President Trump, then they would probably be fired. They'd probably be removed and replaced with somebody who would be even less effectual. I think that was one of the most revealing things. Deborah Burks disappeared in the summer of 2020. She just was gone. Uh, we're all like, well, she, she's not she's not correcting the record on, on what's going on with cases. She's not correcting the record on you know, the fact that you shouldn't drink bleach, you know, all that sort of stuff. But what we now know is that she was prohibited from basically talking to the media, and she took her show on the road. She went to to governors and, and was trying to to go to the states directly. And and but I I just thought it was an interesting point. I, I was trying to put myself in their shoes. I think I know how to do the best job here. I really want to save American lives and and help propagate this vaccine. All these things, but. I got to I got to sort of go a little under the under the radar here otherwise I'm going to I'm going to get you know fired and then somebody's going to replace me that's that's even less effective. That it, it's it's an yeah. age old question. It's it's also interesting because obviously you you mentioned uh Deborah Burks um she did a, a less good job I would say than than Dr. Anthony Fauci um at being sort of at sort of maintaining her reputation. Um, she came under a lot of criticism from opponents of, of Donald Trump for enabling uh, his administration, whereas Dr. Fauci was seen as this sort of hero fighting back from within. Um, right. Do you think that's fair or do you mm. think she's she has undue criticism? 
I don't think it's fair. Um, I don't I, it, because I think it's it's going to be presented. I think historically as a binary thing. He was the he was the sort of the, the, the truth teller, and she was the enabler. And I think I think the truth, you know, the real truth is I think is is really far more nuanced. One just as a simple point of fact, um, she worked at the White House. She was appointed at the White House. That's where her office was. That's where where her set her base was. Dr. Fauci worked at the NIH. Um, he did not directly work for the White House. And I know that that may seem like a small thing, but I've had an issue even pre-pandemic about whether or not our chief science people in this country should be political appointees, mm -hmm. because that is, a, to me, an undue amount of influence of politics on science. Um, but Fauci, I think, in some ways, Dr. Fauci felt more insulated from some of that. It wasn't like he didn't still get a lot of pushback. I mean, the guy travels around with security. He had death threats and all yeah. that. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying, though, that Deborah Burke's constantly in the White House. And her, her, she told me that she felt like her job was to basically try and galvanize support behind these plans within the White House. And it was hard to do. So she was trying to, like, really walk that line. I, I, I think that were it me, were it you, maybe, maybe we would have pushed back harder. But I don't know. There is a center of gravity in the White House. People become starstruck. Uh, I heard that term a lot as well. And I'm talking even people like uh, Robert Redfield and 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 um, Stephen Hahn. You get inside the Oval Office, every president and chief of staff and all these people are looking at you, saying, "Hey, things are going to be okay, right?" Uh, well, yeah, I mean, things are going to be okay. You know, you know, you you start to maybe put a rosier tint on things. It, it's hard to describe. It's nuanced, but I don't. I I wouldn't paint it as clearly as she was the enabler and Fauci was the was the the truth teller. Sure, and um. Do they give any, they obviously all worked on the coronavirus response under President Donald Trump. Do they give credit to the Trump administration for, I, I'd say, Operation Warp Speed, which is something that Trump supporters have pointed to as an accomplishment amidst all of the crazy, terrible, you know, messaging and mismanagement of the crisis that Trump is, is sort of known for in, in the media? Yeah, I think I think so. You know, I mean, I think that... Um... Dr. Fauci, you know, kind of really made the point that the the vaccine trials, um, they really, you know, the, the vaccine platform was sort of determined middle of January, which is a remarkably mm -hmm. fast wow. sort of time period. And, and that they were conducting a lot of research and moving far along when Operation Warp Speed came on board. But I think they give a lot of credit to Operation Warp Speed. They, they had to make a lot of gambles. They brought in, you know, um, uh, someone to, to just sort of run the operation overall, so a real point person. The thing that surprised me a little bit, I guess, um, was they gave a lot of credit to Vice President Pence, hmm. even unprompted. Uh, they, to a person, they all said he was a champion for their efforts. Uh, Deborah Burks, when she was excluded from doing any kind of media, he, she was flying on his plane to all these various places because he wanted to make sure she had all the resources she needed to go to these governors and mayors and oftentimes give a message that was different than the message that was coming out of the White House. Uh, he he was he was supportive of of um, whenever uh, Dr. Redfield was having problems with uh, things that were going on at HHS. It was Pence that that he said he went to. So I think they felt like they got support from from him as the head of the task force, and I think they gave credit to Operation Warp Speed. But look, they they were constantly getting hamstrung by the competing messages coming out of the White House. They spent more of their time fact checking and correcting things than actually being able to move the message forward.
And I thought what was so funny about the Trump administration, this is a bit of a, a side note, but it was Trump had if he had embraced, let's say, the Swedish model of, you know, no lockdowns or at least, you know, we're not leaning in hard to lockdowns as the rest of Europe was, um, it, that would have at least been a coherent message. But the message was never coherent. It was always, you know, he would say he would not wear a mask, but then his aides would come out and tell reporters that he was very in favor of mask wearing. Right. Um, and he would say one thing and then his coronavirus task force would say the complete opposite. And I just I feel like Pence, who is sort of a, a normal conservative, um, would have just yeah had a, had a more coherent handle on how a government should approach a crisis like this, where messaging is one of the most important things. Yeah, I, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And and I think it was interesting when he was appointed to the job, because I think that was the thinking. The only downside of him being in the job, which I found very interesting, uh, to, again, talking to these doctors was because he's the vice president. He, he can't be fired. The accountability is lower. Typically, mm -hmm. czars of these big these big problems like Ebola or whatever, they were people who were very senior people, but could be fired and, and mm -hmm. replaced. And, and that was always an important accountability principle. But, but other than that, I think, I think you're right. And I think that uh, to take even a step further, after that initial sort of agreement on, on um, pausing the country, you know, back in the middle of March of last year, uh, what the doctor said to me is that after that, there was never uh, again, uh, a sort of a, aligned belief system between the coronavirus task force doctors and the president. They, yeah. they just never aligned again. Many of them never even saw the president again. Deborah Burks was essentially excluded after that. Which is a stunning thing to have for months during a, a massive public health crisis. Um, but it, the biggest news I thought that came out of those interviews was former CDC director uh, Robert Redfield. His claim that uh, he thought it was most likely that COVID had escaped from a lab in China, um, as opposed to having leapt from bat to animal to human at a wet market. And that has been treated by many in the media as a conspiracy theory. What do you think of his opinion? He is an experienced virologist. He's an experienced virologist. He was also head of the CDC at the time this was happening, which means that in addition to everything that we know, uh, he had access to raw data and raw intelligence uh, that was coming out of China. My, my point is that it's, it's a much more informed sort of thing for him to be saying than for, you know, anybody who, who may have expertise in virology, because he has a lot more knowledge and information that he has that maybe he can't share, but is informing his opinion. It's still an opinion. But, but I, you know, the, the thing that, the thing that sort of struck me is, first of all, just you'll appreciate this as a media guy. These interviews were 20 plus hours of interviews. You know, ultimately you got to <laughs> distill it down into, yeah. I mean, you know how, I mean, you're like, and then you have to like get rid of 18 hours of it. It's like, you know, picking favorite children. Yeah. But, but one of the, one of the reasons it was so long is because that part of the discussion around China, I must've asked the question a dozen different ways. And I, and I, and I gave a lot of escape hatches for him to, to really clarify, well, you know, it's anybody's guess, whatever. And he did you know, he hedged a little bit. He didn't come out and say hundred percent this, this came from, but he, he really was quite adamant that this, this is the, the origin of the virus. And he doesn't think it was man-made, as you know, he just thinks that the, the virus had been isolated, was being studied in this lab, being exposed to human cells, and then had an accidental lab leak. What I was, I was not as shocked, I think, as you're alluding to by what he said mm. as the fact that he said it. 
because it's been out there for some time. And I've you know been looking into this this angle of the story for a while, um, looking at what happened in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, even pre-pandemic, some of the regulatory lapses there and all that. And it, you know, I mean, there's reason to suspect that this is the origin of the virus. I mean, it's the only, it's a big virology lab right in Wuhan that happened to be studying bad coronaviruses. <laughs> just, just from an Occam's razor standpoint, yeah. finding the simplest uh, explanation, it would make sense. Also keep in mind that 14 months now, 15 months into this, we still don't know for certain what the origin is. So I don't think anybody who says, well, this obviously came from a wet market. You say, well, where's the evidence behind that? There was lots of people who had never been to that wet market who became infected had no contact with anybody at the wet market. There's all these open questions. And even the World Health Organization now, uh, Tedros, who's the head, has said all options, all possibilities are still on the table. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why it got dismissed at the beginning was because you really only had partisans that were publicly promoting it as a theory. You know, Secretary, former Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo, uh, Tom Cotton, uh, the senator from Arkansas, and to have Robert Redfield, who's a very experienced expert on this, um, who, as you said, had access to the raw intelligence um, and was CDC director throughout the, the first year of the pandemic. Um, that was really something. And But now we have the World Health Organization who has gone to China to conduct their investigation in partnership with um, China to really find out how this happened, um, how this originated. Do you think we're ever going to get an answer on that? Because obviously the, the World Health Organization initial investigation has been criticized for, for not being as transparent as it could be. Right. Uh, let me just say one more thing about Redfield as well. He's also a private citizen now, mm. right? So that, that that was a big consideration for us in doing this interview. He was unbridled. Uh, no one is totally without conflict, I guess. I'm not, I'm not that naive to suggest that, but I think that he was much more open to speak. As far as getting the answer, you know, I, I, I hate to say this, but because I think a World Health Organization is such an important entity. And, you know, you, you think, okay, I'm creating a society on planet Earth and I'm worried about these viral sort of pandemics that might occur. Let's create a huge organization that, that determines health for the world. The World Health Organization, that's been mm. it, it makes perfect sense. The problem right now is I do think that, that I, I do question how independent they're able to act. Um, even with this most recent investigation, China had a lot of say in terms of who was actually going to be on that investigative committee. It's it's um, I talked to people who who actually went to China. They were primarily relegated to a hotel in Wuhan, so they're in Wuhan, but they're not really in in parts of the the, the country where they could you know make more accurate determinations about what happened here. So we may never really know. Um, it, it's possible now. They're saying they're going to go to these areas where the bat caves are and check for antibodies and people live in those areas but you know look it's 15 months into things they may have antibodies for totally different reasons now you know so i, I we, we may never know for sure and i think you know i think as every doctor in the documentary said china has not has not been forthright uh, historically and now there's increasing evidence that they were not forthright now as well they would rather this theory not not be validated and that's that's incredibly problematic right because as you as you said in your in your interviews with the doctors it's it's not so much about finding out the origins of this is not so much about assigning blame it's about figuring out what happens so that we can prevent the next pandemic yeah and and you know lab leaks occur in the united states too you know we've had significant lab leaks here uh that that you know could have turned into real disasters but if this was a pandemic that originated from a lab and that could have been prevented by having 
a strong independent uh, regulatory authority like a World Health Organization or even other countries that are all sort of policing each other in a, in a constructive way, then we need to do that. I mean, the thing that the thing that people said to me all over the place, virologists, epidemiologists, was that this wasn't necessarily the black swan event. This, this, this is a pandemic that could have largely been prevented. Like if you want to go to the lab and you say, hey, if we just had stronger regulatory sort of authority over that lab, we could have saved millions of people around the world. Well, yeah, I, I'd like to know that. And I think that that's, that's, that's the whole point. That's, that's why this origin story is so important. Now, uh, I want to talk to you about your book, Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age. Uh, it's sort of a guide to keeping your brain healthy and warding off cognitive decline. Yeah. The book was not written for the pandemic, as far as I know, but this year of plague and lockdowns has made mental health a prominent issue for a lot of people. Do you think the book is instructive for people, at this point, almost everyone, who is having a tough time with the last year in terms of their mental health? I, you know, I, I, I really do. You know, obviously I am, I am biased. I wrote the book, <laughs> but I, I, you know, the book was supposed to come out in February of 2020 and, and we decided to hold it because of you know, obviously everything that was happening in the world. Um, I, it wasn't about the pandemic, but the, the thing that, the thing that really struck me as I was, you know, frankly dealing with my own, you know, um, um, mental impact of this pandemic, my own isolation and my own worry about my brain was sort of uh, not functioning as well as it used to because I was so immersed in something like this. Uh, the, the book in some ways took on added relevance. The, I think the biggest takeaway in some ways, just to, just to sort of get to that, is that you, you, at any age, you, you really can grow new brain cells. I mean, the wisdom, even when I was, I'm much older than you, obviously, but when I was going through, you know, college, med school, it was kind of like this, this belief, you, you got a certain number of neurons, you drain the cash as you get older, some things like drinking will, will advance that deterioration, and you don't get it back. That was the sort of conventional wisdom. That's not true. Um, we used to think that only when you were a baby or after a brain injury, could you grow new brain cells, baby's brain still developing, someone who's injured may be responding to the injury. But even healthy brains can grow new brain cells. And when you grow new brain cells, that is an incredibly joyous thing. It can help insulate you against all sorts of different neurodegenerative problems, uh, from mood disorders to long-term dementia. And how you grow new brain cells, I think, was the most fascinating part, was that all the things that we think about typically, I'm going to do a lot of crossword puzzles and things like that, those can be great, but doing something totally different preferably something that you do with your hands, like, I don't know, paint. And if you do it with your non-dominant hand, that inspires really, really rapid neurogenesis. And, and, I, and I, I know I'm, you know, I can talk about this all day, but the idea that, you know, practice makes perfect, but change builds a resilient brain, I think was, was perhaps one of the most important things that I, I was learning from these neuroscientists and now becomes relevant to people throughout this pandemic. Do something different instead of becoming so expert at one thing that's like visiting different cities in your brain and it brings you joy now and helps protect you later that's it fascinating because i sort of almost discovered that when in i remember last spring um i was sort of kind of in a rut just because i was rolling out of bed to my computer working all day going back to bed and there was nothing really else to do and i noticed that if i just changed uh, changed my routine or did new things 
like, you know, take up cycling, you know, go outside for certain points of the day, take up different activities that my, my, I'd be like much happier. And yeah. it's like, it's just, it's, I guess it's just training your brain to do new things and keeping variety in your life just makes your mental health better. Yeah. I, I, I sort of, you know, metaphorically, I was thinking of it sort of the same way as you, and it has been, you know, rinse, repeat for, you know, 15 <laughs> months now, but, but the idea that it was kind of like, I, I like to travel. I'm not getting to travel right now. Mm. I like to see different parts of the world, different cultures. Um, you can't do that right now, but you could, you could do it in your brain. And, and I, I don't want to sound overly euphemistic, but this idea that trying new things is kind of like visiting these different areas of your brain. And it's fun. First of all, you connect patterns that you otherwise wouldn't connect. And again, this idea of building a more resilient brain can really be protective later on. I also, the, one other thing I'll tell you, which I, I just found fascinating, I spoke to a lot of loneliness and isolation researchers for the book, even, again, this was pre-pandemic, because I was just interested in the, the, the impact of isolation on the brain. And as you might, might, might guess, there's significant impact. But one of the things they said to me over and over again from different people was that you want to obviously have connections with people. That's a way to overcome isolation. And you can do that via screen like you and I are doing now. You can do it in phone. It doesn't always have to be in person. But the more, the more, the more salient point is how do you have a meaningful connection with somebody? Just picking up a phone, calling your buddy or a friend or whoever and saying, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing great. You know, and, and it's a cursory sort of conversation. This connection, but not necessarily meaningful. One of the most rapid ways to get to a point of developing meaningful connection with people is to be vulnerable, is to ask for help, to share your, your, your problems, which sounded very counterintuitive to me. But the idea that you would, you would just ask for help from somebody uh, creates an entire cascade of effects. Uh, first of all, you feel less burdened. The other person who's getting to help you releases oxytocin, which is this really protective hormone. It was, it was amazing to me to, to, to make the focus not just on the number of connections or even in-person connections, but meaningful connections. And by the way, the quickest way to do it is to allow yourself to be vulnerable. We don't do that enough, I think, generally as human beings, especially in very wealthy countries like the United States. I have a, a last question because you mentioned uh, travel. Um, do you have a, a planned trip or, or a, at least even in your mind, a, a planned trip for when we're going to be able to be traveling around the world? I, th I think it's, I think it's quite possible that you be traveling around the world within the next few months this summer. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, um, especially for people who are, who are vaccinated that are going to other countries that may have, you know, even better vaccination rates than us. I was just talking with some of my producers about a trip to Israel, for example, that we might need to do for this story that we're working on. I think one of the, one of the things just, just from a pragmatic standpoint, if you are thinking about travel is to also understand what the, what the policies are in those countries, because mm -hmm. some, some places you go, they may have mandatory quarantine for 14 days once you arrive. So you need to think about that. They may have mandatory testing when you arrive. And if you test positive, you may need to go right back or there's mandatory testing when you fly back to the States. So just keep in mind that, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of factors that are not necessarily life and death sort of things, especially if you've been vaccinated, but could greatly impact, you know, how you plan your, your, your travel and things like that. So, but I, you know, I'm, as I started this conversation, I'm optimistic. I really am. I, I, I you know, I'm humble but I'm optimistic. Well, I do hope that it, it's not a work trip and that you get a vacation in. Um, Dr. Oh, Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much for, <laughs> yes. for joining me. What a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. 
Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.